Hi guys, Andrew Dowling here, Mitch Kurtz, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Ultimate Podcast. Make sure to hit like and subscribe to stay up to date with all that we have coming. All things Ultimate? Yeah, that too. Okay. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the AltMed podcast. Your host here, Andrew Dowling. I've got my co-host on the line as always, Mitch Kurtz. Howdy. Mitch. Uh, yeah, well done. <laughs> five o'clock shadow, quite literally happening over there. Mm. And we've got a very special guest joining us today, someone we've been looking forward to speaking to for, for quite some time. It is Dr. Teresa Topic, who is a doctor, a specialist medical cannabis doctor, and a co-founder at Medijuana. Dr. Teresa, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. It is sure. our pleasure. We're um, yeah, we've got quite a few things to to talk about. I, I know you've been busy contributing articles to cannabis and um you know you've got your book so that there's there's a few things that we'll be touching on throughout this discussion but maybe we'll, we'll start with um your background um what your practice was perhaps before you got into to medical cannabis prescribing and and sort of how you you've managed to find yourself there Thank you very much, Andrew, for, for the introduction and, and inviting me to speak today. So I graduated in Poland uh, originally in 1984. And when I came to Australia, I had to go through the Australian medical cancer situation. And I became a, uh, a doctor in Australia in 91, working in various hospitals and then GP since 93. And throughout my uh, professional life as a GP, I always used to practice very conventional evidence uh, based medicine. And, and so when I came across medicinal cannabis in January 2016, when I heard that it was going to be legalized for medicinal use, I was very, very surprised because to me, as I said many times, um, I didn't even know what cannabis was. Sorry about it, but that's the fact. I, to me, it was just marijuana, and I was so ignorant and arrogant that I really didn't even know what THC was or, or CBD or, God forbid, the endocannabinoid system. So uh, my lack of knowledge, my arrogance and understanding was quite significant. I was basically afraid of marijuana as a teenager growing up in Poland. To me, it was the case, okay, these people started smoking, some of them, and very quickly became heroin addicts. So there was a bit of a fear, dogma, misunderstanding, complete misunderstanding um, associated with it. And yeah. is that, sorry, just to jump in straight off the bat, so Poland, when you were growing up there, it just was not culturally or socially acceptable to, to take cannabis even recreationally, is that... Oh, absolutely. It was very like, at, at least in my experience, it was a, a big no-no. It was such mm -hmm. a significant stigma that, you know, you don't do this kind of thing. It's very bad. Your your your, your life would be ruined. You know, yeah, you yeah. become heroin addict and this is it all over for you. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, and it's... Um, very it sounds much like... it was no, no culture of, of smoking cannabis at all. People Her would... Heroin, cannabis usage equals heroin addict. It's, it's, it's funny. That's how it was. That's yeah. How it was. 
Well, I mean, it's used in some cases as a tool for addiction or, sorry, removing addiction, I should say. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, we're now finding more and more evidence that uh, medicinal cannabis, especially the CBD part, um, is becoming, emerging as a very promising agent in the treatment of addiction because um, CBD interacts with so many uh, neurobiological systems in a human body that are responsible for acquisition and maintenance of drug addiction. So it is becoming very promising. We can even treat uh, cannabis addiction with, with, with and, and even THC as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, there's, yeah, I've been hearing more. Obviously, we've we've done a couple of podcasts on a few different psychedelic therapies that deal with addiction, but but cannabis is absolutely one. We we see it for for nicotine as well. Yeah, as you said, alcohol. It's um, I think we've already started. I feel like we've started halfway through this conversation at the start. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, that's it, it's very interesting that um, now do, do we know where Poland sits at the moment on cannabis. Are they moving towards legalization as well? I feel like uh, that. Look, uh, that's right. I, I know that uh, now cannabis products are available in Poland through the distribution through, through pharmacists. But what I understand is mostly uh, CBD-based products. I don't believe they have a lot of access to THC, which, yeah. uh, but I'm not exactly sure if I'm giving you right information. This is just my understanding of, of what is happening. I know it's easy to get CBD, but I'm not so sure about THC. Yeah. So can, can you can you talk us through how like how exactly what it was like in that in that transition from going from a a skeptic, let's say, to an advocate in a bit more detail? How did how did your journey really make that transition? Okay, there's a bit of a story here. Uh, that that. Uh, in January 2016, I went for a meditation retreat. And we were talking actually, that was to do with psychedelics. And then, you know, we're doing um, a healing circle with certain psychedelics. And then there was the sharing. And one of the participants actually said, uh, we're talking about plants as sacred plants, the teacher plants. And one of the participants said, I didn't really think much about cannabis at all uh, at the time. That person said, you know, you don't choose your plant. The plant will choose you when you are ready. And then uh, I came home and my son said to me, you know that uh, cannabis is going to be legalized for medicine use. And I basically felt the shiver down, down, down my spine. I really had this visceral reaction to this, but, oh, is it, could it be my plant? Is it happening so quick? And then I felt very compelled to, to do my own research. I started going through various articles, PubMed articles, and so on. But my learning was very chaotic, just going from one article to another. And uh, it was quite difficult because I was also very busy GP, uh, working every day in the medical center, about 40 hours per week. So it was quite challenging and difficult. So I thought, but also what happened, uh, I hope I am not too chaotic here. I started watching some stories on YouTube of, of patients who are actually uh, using medicinal cannabis. And I was very, very surprised. It was like the curtain started opening. I realized that this amazing plant has been used by humanity for thousands of years. And, and it's not only medicinal, there are so many other uses, but this is such a sophisticated plant. And I also watched you know, the, the stories of children suffering from um, uh, uh, refractory and pediatric epilepsy. And somehow I also felt that connection. My heart started opening up and I felt, if it makes any sense, but felt this kind of voice within me that 
um, I kind of even felt I had no choice, that I have to act. Yeah. Um, I felt the sense of guidance uh, from my inner self. I don't know how you call it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it felt like it's impossible for me just to be a neutral bystander, conveniently waiting for others to, to start acting and very quickly I being, became involved. And then in October 2016, we co-founded Medijuana because I felt that what we we're missing would be some easy to follow structured program that would introduce the doctor to basic scientific facts about medicine cannabis and then uh, just be very practical for a busy GP to attend the workshop or do the online course that would then equip them with the necessary skills to prescribe medicine cannabis confidently and uh, judiciously in a proper clinical setup. I, I was you know, concerned that so many patients resort going to so-called black market, although, uh, please don't take me wrong, I'm not really criticizing black market because there are so many very dedicated people in that space. But at the same time, I think sometimes people could be misdiagnosed that they require proper uh, clinical medical um, assessment, uh, monitoring, follow-up, and and also seeing the whole patient, not only from the point of the of the symptom. Well, it's it's really um. I mean, I just picking up first on on one point you discussed. I, I actually remember around about the time that in sort of twenty sixteen, when Victoria was the first state to to you know create the Access to Medicinal Cannabis Act. Um, it, it was a time when I did see a lot of those YouTube videos circulating, you, you know, you would see children who were, you know, suffering an epileptic fit and, you know, the parents would drop CBD oil on their tongue and, and the child would begin to, you know, to calm and, and not be, you know, restless and emerge from, from what they were going through. And yeah, it's, it's been really difficult because we can't, it seems still like we're not even really, uh, you know, supposed to have regard to any of these videos or not, not supposed to be talking about them. But I, I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit late for that now, because I think people can see that for some people, um, you know, they, they are just, you know, hugely helpful. And I, you're definitely not the first doctor that we've heard that has described as a doctor feeling that overwhelming sense of duty to actually you know to to go out and to learn if not to prescribe just to at least better understand what it, well, what is this medicine that we suddenly have the ability to prescribe that you know required changes to the criminal law and other areas of law just to be able to be used as a medicine i mean it's mm -hmm. it's been a, a heck of a journey and one which um i think i can confidently say we've still got many more chapters to come. So um, we're kind of in the middle middle of the story or possibly even closer to the start. But um, but let me ask you about, I suppose, just one thing that, that I came across um, in researching for this episode was your article released on cannabis where you talk about PBS um, mm -hmm. and, and how a lot of people who are on medical cannabis, you know, come from low socioeconomic backgrounds, um, you know, and medical cannabis, whilst it may be slightly more affordable than maybe it was, you know, a few years ago, mm -hmm. um, is still out of reach for some patients. What can you say, what, what do you say to, to that? 
That's right. This is a problem because of so many patients that I have prescribed medicine cannabis uh, until I stopped when I was diagnosed with recurrent metastatic breast cancer. And majority of these patients I notice are, are basically coming from low social and economic background. So this is a bit of a vicious circle because they have to rely on a huge polypharmacy. So quite often the number of drugs they take, I used to see patients taking anything 10 to 20 different drugs. And they, they are still not helping, not fully controlling their symptoms. Their functionality is affected. They, start, they, they, they quite often feel like a zombie. And then um, they come for a consultation because they hear <clears throat> that cannabis is legal for medicinal use. And they, are, they hear the stories of other people who are healing and, and functioning better and their symptoms are better controlled. And then they find out about the price. So it's a bit of a shock. Uh, a lot of these patients are pensioners or, or you know, uh, age pensioners or relying on health benefits and, and so on. So it, it is uh, really quite difficult. But in spite of that, so many of these patients would say, uh, in the initial consultation, look, I can't afford it, but I am going to give it a go. And then we tried. And some of them, you know, said to me, even though it's very, very expensive, but it changed my life so much that I can uh, deny myself all the other things, but I'm going to find money for medicine cannabis. And some people do that. However, unfortunately, there are some, for example, come from the black market situation, they've been smoking cannabis and so on, they come and see the doctor and they realize that they actually feel better being by guided by the doctor with a consistency of dosing and proper advice and monitoring. But then they say, okay, it's a few hundred dollars pay per month, I, I simply can't afford it. And mm. to me, it is very sad. I also believe very strongly that there are some substantial healthcare, uh, you know, cost saving can, can be made as well. Absolutely. If medicinal cannabis become on, on PBS, because we're spending so much money on, for example, chronic pain management. We're talking about billions of dollars. Also, so it's not only treatment costs, but it, it's time loss at work. So many of these people have to go on a disability pension and rely on Centrelink payments and so on. And, there's, and we can see, first of all, we can reduce huge polypharmacy. So there's one saving to the government because cannabis is such a multi-target drug and I've observed benefits on many levels. Levels, this is symptomatic relief, but so they they can reduce their polypharmacy, opioids, benzos, and all the other things. So that's one thing. Also, uh, by treating patients well in the community, unfortunately, I have to say, when it comes to modern medicine, we are very good at uh, acute uh, medicine, but when it comes to chronic disease management, I think we are failing. In spite of having so many drugs, the the you know rate of cardiovascular diseases, cancer and infectious diseases, antibiotic resistance is on the rise. So there is something we can do things better in, in a community. So better symptomatic control. We can reduce the number of unnecessary hospital admission. We may even reduce number of unnecessary surgical procedures, such as bypass or, or hip replacement and some other things. And as the patient become more functional, a lot of them are willing to go back to work. So uh, I think that putting medicine cannabis and in plus all the other medicines like psychedelics and so on we know psilocybin is promising in the treatment of major depression if we start looking into that i think we can you know have substantial cost saving apart from the compassion part of just empowering people and treating them uh, more efficiently in the community absolutely there's you know and what you're describing really is <clears throat> I, I think there's there's a clear structural 
flaw in the existing system. So we we you know we say that only approved or registered medicines can attract Commonwealth funding under the the PBS. Mm. Um, but you know the problem there being that a lot of these drugs that are approved or registered can cause a lot of you know bad side effects or have unintended consequences for patients. Mm-hmm. Um, we the taxpayer we're paying for those medicines. <laughs> Um, you know, whereas, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it really, you know, it, it, if we've got a pie there that needs to be divided, I think we really need to to think a little bit more carefully about where, you know, where we make the cuts. And, and yeah, frankly, the, the issue of polypharmacy is a recurring theme with um, medicinal cannabis patients. Um, and I, I just, yeah, it's a no brainer for, for me, but um but unfortunately, we would need to, um, if not dismantle the current system, we'd need to certainly reform it. Um, you know, so that that just appears to be a step that uh, that someone will need to take in in future. Um, but yeah, how how do you, in terms of your patients, are you, are you do you see a lot of patients who are living with chronic disease or like what, what's your... Look, as I said before, I've stopped uh, active clinical practice in February 2020 uh, because of, of cancer. But um, mm-hmm. when, when when I was practicing, yeah, there, there's a lot of patients uh, in, in this category. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of patients who are, I mean, polypharmacy is such a such a huge thing in in a medical practice. Yeah, and and, and I've majority of patients who uh, approach me for medicine cannabis would suffer from chronic debilitating pain, most mm-hmm. of them, and they usually suffer from any comorbidities uh, because you know constant painful stimuli coming from the periphery and hitting the brain. Of course, it affects the brain structure as well. So uh, most of these people have mental health comorbidities such as anxiety, depression, PTSD, uh, drug addiction, also coming with metabolic uh, syndrome. A lot of them will suffer from ischemic heart disease or high cholesterol or diabetes. So most of these patients were very complex and difficult to treat and especially with chronic pain. And some of them would feel that that the health system let them down. They, 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 you know, they just would go from doctor to doctor and and not really finding a solution to their problem. How, how do you um um how do you find educating doctors on this? Like, I, I know obviously when you're a doctor and treating patients, there's a level of education getting them across a new medicine. So they're going from you know, taking traditional single compound medicines, um, you know, lots of side effects, different things. There's there's obviously a learning curve, you know, especially if you're prescribing flour, you're mm-hmm. inhaling things and, and you're trying to also break down this stigma that many patients might have had across the journey that might have been in your position back, you know, 10 years ago um, in terms of uh, approach. How do you, what's harder? Is it harder to educate that patient and bring that away or is it harder to educate doctors? Look, um, uh, it, it really has changed a lot. In the beginning, what I was observing, that there, there was more acceptance among general public, that patients were very interested and willing uh, to come. So, for example, when I started prescribing, when it was possible, it was all word of mouth. Uh, so the, I would never initiate, I, I never used to initiate conversation about medicine cannabis. People were seeking uh, for me, just finding out that I'm, uh, you know, uh, uh, prescribing and, and I am uh, supportive of that. <laughs> Oops, sorry, I need to. 
You're a working, working woman, we understand. <laughs> Sorry about it. I, I don't know why this person is calling. I was, you know, I, I said that I'm having a podcast. But then, <laughs> what was I saying? Um, that uh, Prescribing the, in terms of educating doctors versus educating okay. patients. Yeah. So in the beginning, we have more acceptance from general public, from patients. But really quite embracing it. And mm. interesting, the, you know, the, the demographic, uh, like... Um, a lot of the patients would, uh, would be uh, who are coming with senior patients in the very 70s, 80s, 90s. Note, I'm not saying 60s senior patients because I am in my 60s. So, no, 60s are not seniors. <laughs> <laughs> it's new 40. Juniors. So, yeah. I was seeing lots of patients, but doctors in the beginning were very reluctant and I think a bit concerned, not sure what to do, because if you were uh, programmed into thinking of, that this is a criminal drug, this is illegal and it's causing so much damage. How can you embrace this as a healing agent? But gradually, and I remember we started running a series of workshops, uh, practical skills in prescribing medicines on cannabis since October 2018. Initially, it was a little bit difficult to find the, the you know, about 20 doctors uh, to, to enroll. But now um, our workshops are very popular. We usually do roughly about uh, two per month, sometimes three, sometimes one. And so far, as far as I know, I think we trained about uh, close to two and a half thousands of, of doctors uh, in Australia. And uh, we're having some new initiative at Medijuana, so we're running regular workshops, but we also introduced the community, um, the, the Medicine Cannabis Forum, where doctors are actually reaching out to us and asking practical questions or any questions we might, they might have. We are also now running a series of, of webinars with guest speakers. So we had one with ADHD, we had one even on the, on the psilocybin and MDMA. So we can see, we are observing that the doctors who are enrolling in our workshop, they're really very interested. Uh, they're willing to learn. They see that this is important, that they need to respond to community needs. But the recurrent theme and difficulty is the loss on driving. There's always this question coming back. What do we do? We know that every part of the plant is, is important. But if you just want to use CBD, it's uh, going to be very expensive because CBD is not as strong as, as product with THC. You may require higher volume and it may not be cost effective. And we also know that um, if you prescribe medicine cannabis judiciously, responsibly, stick to microdosing, most of the time patients really are not impaired even taking a small amount of THC. So the loss of driving are very difficult to overcome. And unfortunately, um, clinical decisions are quite often based not on what really patient needs, but whether or not they can drive. Mm, so it's interesting. Just, just thinking about that kind of stigma part, I mean, there's there's two arguments that come up a lot. Uh, well, I guess from my side, when I think about it, it, you know, doctors are prescribing opioids pretty frequently, which are also oh, illicit, yeah. illicit substances. Uh, doctors even uh, provide or write scripts for, um, let's say, methamphetamine type products, um, which, you know, that's a, a very recreational drug as well out in, out in the yeah. in public. So, I don't understand why cannabis can't be viewed as the same, something that can be used to derive, let's say, recreational enjoyment, but um, and maybe mis misappropriated, if if you will, in that way. If if you want to be uh, very uh, specific, you know, 
hard line about it, but at the same time, be a beneficial agent. And the other, the other argument that I hear a lot is that it's a gateway drug, which is such a, such a weak argument in, in, in my opinion, because it's, it's like saying you might do something else at, that is harmful as a result of doing something that's not really harmful, which to me is like, it's such a flimsy argument because it, it doesn't, it doesn't actually, there's no reason to label that as a, as what it is, a drug of dependence. If yeah. your if your argument is that you might do actual drugs of dependence, addiction potential of cannabis is, is not. It can be addictive for some people. They, you know, some people may even develop cannabis use disorder. However, addiction potential of cannabis is not that strong. Uh, when you have uh, on on a rate of um, one to three, uh, from one to three. Uh, heroin is most addictive, rated as free, number one, and uh, medicinal cannabis is rated as 0.8, and it's sort of on, on that list, it goes as, as number uh, 15. So it's less addictive than alcohol, benzos, opioids, uh, even codeine, which is commonly prescribed for, for chronic pain. Yeah. So there is some potential for addiction, of course, but we are not talk, talking about using huge amount of cannabis. We are talking about responsible judicious medicine use when we stick to microdosing. And the idea is that we try to find the smallest possible dose that would offer maximum therapeutic uh, you know, uh, effect with no or minimal adverse effects. And also I can say that, uh, look, I'm, I'm a medicinal cannabis patient myself. And I've, I've been on medicinal cannabis since May 2019. And on a regular basis, I take so-called titration break. Uh, I stop cannabis for two or three days and I have absolutely no problem with, yeah. a, uh, you know. Uh, so that's, but in terms of uh, addiction profile, you, you're not, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're, you're, you're talking about how addictive it can be, it, it's not like, let's say, alcohol or opioids where you have actual withdrawal symptoms. Is that the case? I don't have withdrawal symptoms. But also, if you don't mind, I can quickly share with you one of my slides that shows the graph. Are you are you okay with that? Please do. Would you like to see it? Okay. Just one moment. I'll be very quick. Yeah. Um, we'll have to talk it through for those people um, that aren't actually watching the YouTube version of this um but that's all right we'll definitely get uh, we'll do an outline of it okay uh, i just quickly if you can see it i need to go to one of the slides uh, and i will share this with you about the addiction yeah 100 I, I think i i think i might be uh familiar with the table you're about to show us is that from uh, robert gable yeah where it sits on the xy axis that's right. Are you okay? you still want me to show this? Please or? do. Yeah, no, that's very. That's a great example of, of the uh, kind of dependence or, or addiction profile that cannabis has in relation to other drugs. I think the only one that's less from memory was is it psilocybin? Okay, so can you see my screen? Is it visible? Yes. And okay, so for those she, playing along at home, we've got, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, just a graph. Of, it's slightly different to the one um, that I was looking at, but yeah. Okay, so we're talking about physical de dependence. Uh, so here you've got heroin, which is rated number one, and the addiction potential is because on that line you've got harm score, and mm. here is the which uh, number is taking, which which uh, rank. So heroin is number one, rated as three. Now, when you look at cannabis, it's number 15 and rated as about 0.8. And then you we've got other things, for example, uh, you know, 
ketamine, amphetamines, codeine, buprenorphine, which is opioid, alcohol, tobacco, benzodiazepines, barbutates, street methadone, offer much, much uh, higher harm score and, and potential for addiction than, than cannabis. So that kind of gives you things in, into perspective. It yeah, certainly well. does. I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting, both, you know, cannabis, MDMA, um, both sitting well and truly down the pecking order. That's um, right, yeah, yeah. And even, it's not here, but I also know that, for for example, uh, I know that there's different graphs, sorry, um, but it's not here. Coffee is much more addictive than cannabis because, like, I can stop cannabis and I don't really need to take it if, uh, you know, if I... Uh, if it wasn't my medical condition, I really wouldn't be taking this at all. Uh, but for example, I can't start my morning without a coffee. Imagine if coffee was scheduled for. Oh um, my God. <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be a few people. I, I've seen a few people here in Melbourne mainlining it. Absolutely. It's so it's a. Uh, well, it's, I would just visit an authorized barista or anyway. Um, <laughs> But, you know, also talking about cannabis as gateway drug, the problem here is that um, in a way it could be gateway, but not because of the botanical properties of the plant. We know that addiction score is quite low. It's because uh, it's illegal uh, to use, for for example, recreational use. So teenagers, young people may... And and please don't understand, please understand me, but I'm not recommending that teenagers would be smoking. But they always ex humans experiment all the time. That's part of our human nature. So uh, let's say that these young people uh, may be going to illegal drug dealers. So they they start mixing with the wrong crowd. And as they are mixing with the road crowd, the drug dealer is not interested in giving them advice or don't take it. The drug dealer would be more interested in giving them more. And, and they say, oh, how about you try this, you try that. And that in this way, not because how it interacts with the human body, but because of social interaction can become great with drug, if you mm. know what I'm trying mm. to say. Yeah, totally. I, I, I um, I, It's also worth reminding um, everybody that, that cannabis is actually legal in the ACT and you could be a teen you could be 18 or 19 and you could get it legally you could grow it legally for yourself technically so to say that it's not legal and not in the hands of teenagers right now in Australia is it recreationally at least in some uh, part is actually untrue so it's 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 very much we have a, a case study for it occurring right now um, not to mention the, the recent decriminalization that the ACT had on on the rest of the drugs, including cocaine and um, I think even heroin. And I, I was reading about in methamphetamine to, in small amounts, which is pretty pretty radical for Australia, I would say. Uh, but but yeah, it it is something definitely. I mean, we we hear about this um, this study, and we heard it with one of the previous guests. There's this study. I'm trying to remember the exact um, study. You might be able to rejog my memory on the. That it can be harmful for patients under twenty-five THC. There's, uh, I'm trying to remember that. Okay, know. so so this is the thing that um, we need to be. Uh, THC has this reputation of being uh, that's the psychotropic part of, of of a cannabis plant, but it all it is also highly therapeutic as well. And, mm -hmm. and it has bidirection effect on mood. So due to uh, individual genetic variability, for some people it may elevate anxiety, for some people may um, actually, for some people may relieve anxiety, for some people can make it worse. 
and and it depends on how what is the genetical makeup but also it depends on activation of cannabinoid receptors on the uh, glutamatergic and gamma ergic neurons so activation of cb1 receptor of, of uh, gamma ergic neurons will inhibit gaba release on these uh, presynaptic neurons and that will rely, uh, re result in uh, anxiety causing high doses of THC. Then on, on the other uh, neurons of glutamate during inhibition of glutamate will result in anxiolytic effects. So that's why we need to be very smart how we are using this, this molecule. Also, because another thing is with to do with the deficiency in the endocannabinoid system. We know that we all have an endocannabinoid system, which is responsible for cellular re uh, regulation, homeostasis, internal communication, and so on. As we go through going through life, that system becomes deficient and there's theory of endocannabinoid system deficiency. However, teenagers, young people, their endocannabinoid tone, most of the time, if they're healthy, is very good. So they don't really need any cannabis because by doing that, they can start down-regulating the endocannabinoid system and it may be very counterproductive. And plus, we still don't understand study shows that, you know, are using uh, cannabis on young developing brain may affect their, their cognition and may result in, 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 in quite a few problems. So um, it's much better if teenagers don't don't use cannabis at all unless they have a clinical condition. But when it comes to to drugs, the choice whether or not to use drugs should come from the education, from wisdom, not uh, the the penalty or prohibition. Because you know forbidden fruit usually tastes best. But if everyone is educated, including our kids then they will start making the decision, not because they're afraid of the penalty, it's because they know what says for them or what doesn't. Mm -hmm. does, it, does it sound a bit utopian? <laughs> oh, it's, <laughs> look, it's the sort of, you know, future that I want to live in. Um, but I just wanted to dive into one topic and I, I was going to ask if we could talk about your experience as a patient with yes. medicinal cannabis. I know we've kind of um, touched on it you know, briefly, or it's it's come up in our conversation. And I was going to ask you, um, Dr. Teresa, if it's okay for us to talk about that. But then I remembered that you've recently written a book about it. So I feel perhaps we, um, we can go there. But um, can you tell us about the book and a little bit about your, your journey? Thank you. Yeah, thank you for asking. So this book is called Cancer My Greatest Teacher. And uh, actually, I started writing this book in October 2017. It was a sense of guidance um, because I, my original diagnosis was in uh, 2001 in, when I was diagnosed with a, a locally invasive uh, breast cancer. So I underwent all the usual treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, reconstruction later on and so on. But in 2017, when I woke up um, and just in that stage between awake and, 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 and asleep, like a question, like a voice in my head asked me, what cancer really meant for you? And the next voice was, teacher. It was my greatest teacher. So I quickly went into the computer, started writing the book. Within six uh, weeks, the basic manuscript came out, but I didn't know what to do about it. So I got uh, some advice. The person advised me to write the book about my life. So in that book, I'm basically writing not just from the book about cancer, the book about my life came out when I talk about many um, sort of negative experiences 
and I'm showing that doesn't matter how life treats you, you can always find the way to uh, grow and transcend all your difficulties. So then I was just about to publish this book in May 2019 when I found out that cancer came back. And the way I found out, I have extremely severe pain in my left shoulder at night for a few days and nothing during the day. So that prompted me to have a bone scan. I just thought maybe this is going to be the degenerative changes. So when I had a bone scan, it showed that actually I had my left lung was full of cancer. I had multiple metastases in my bones. So uh, because I believe in integrative approach, I, I went on uh, conventional medication, but then I started feeling quite unwell uh, with the conventional drugs. So I, I went on medicinal cannabis as well. Initially, it was very, very confusing for me because I was trying to do high doses of both chemotherapy as well as uh, medicinal cannabis. And it was really very much trial and error. I was rather lonely in this situation. And uh, uh, for the first about 12 months, I was very unwell. I lost close to 30 kilo in weight. I become very mentally burned out. I was quite depressed. I have recurrent thoughts of suicide. It, it felt like life is really not worth living. But somehow as I was going, I kept on going. I was meditating a lot and so on. I found the happy medium where I actually was able to reduce the conventional drug and reduce the cannabis. And my oncology is very happy. So we can see that uh, you know, by using cannabis, I can afford to use less chemotherapy. And somehow, uh, you know, it, it seems to be working for me. It is into, I'm going to fourth year and uh, lung changes have disappeared, which I was very happy about. I have a large tumor close to my heart, uh, 3.7 uh, centimeters, and they completely melted. I still have some metastasis in my bones. And... Um, and I, I, right now, I feel like I, I got the happy medium when I found the right dose of medicinal cannabis and, 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 and the conventional. But also, I, in my workshop, I always teach that cannabis is not a panacea for everything. You also need to use it in conjunction with other treatments. If you, so I do a lot of meditation, diet, exercise, you know, cold water, shower, cold showers, swimming in the cold ocean, Wim Hof, uh, you know, breathing exercises. So I do quite a lot to enhance my life, not only just, just to uh, heal cancer, uh, but also have better quality of life. And my attitude now is with cancer that regardless of how, how many years or months or days, whatever I've got, live each day uh, as uh, with a, as much joy as you can, yeah, if it makes sense. But to me, to me, what happened now at this stage of my life, that to me, the, um, I measure my success by how much joy I have, not by much, uh, how, no, how money I have, how much money I have in the bank, or how much approval I'm getting, or people like me or not like me. It's how it feels within me. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I, I have to say the, you know, what what you described with, you know, years later, you know, coming across the, the situation and going in for the scan, that must have been a very scary time. But, um, you know, how amazing you, you look glowing, healthy, um, you. clearly um, come through with with quite a, an impressive recovery. Um, and and I, I love that I actually have a, a mate who um, he, he unfortunately had a type of cancer that has actually a very um, strong survival rate. So he, he's he's fine, but he he had this when he was quite in his early 20s. And he said that the one thing that that cancer does is it just give, once you have a brush with mortality, 
you know, you you just have a complete new lease on on life. And it sounds like, I mean, were you doing any of the Wim Hof uh, exercises before? Oh, yeah, every day, a, every day, and oh, I every day. And I jump in the cold shower, it's killing me, but it feels so good after. And uh, mm-hmm. because, look, I know it sounds paradoxical. Cancer kind of woke me up mm. in a way. It's a bit of an awakening. Who yeah. I am as a human being, what my life is all about. Is it just about accumulation of material things or other more important uh, things? Almost, I, love, I do love money, material things. Why not? You know, it gives you yeah. opportunities. Like I, I went to South America this year. Uh, for, I traveled for two months. I did Inca Trail. Oh, and beautiful. walking with cancer and while walking with, with ink on ink with my fiance, we all both got COVID as well. But you know, you just put it out of experience, you, you keep on going, you keep on going until your last breath. Yeah. That's how it is. So the paradox is that somehow I have a certain, although I would prefer not to have cancer, but there's also a sense of gratitude that it guided me to this kind of inexperiences, which otherwise I wouldn't experience. Mm without it so it, it made my life much much deeper but i'm talking about inner life not necessarily uh you know that kind of life superficial no absolutely um it's yeah i, I do you find though because i i you're not the first person that i've heard recently talk about um yeah these holistic integrated um approaches to to health and incorporating a cold shower um every morning um mm. it sounds like it would be more effective than a coffee but um at, at, you know waking I have both. <laughs> yeah i have both okay do you have the coffee in the the cold shower or afterwards like what's afterwards, did... afterwards. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's um yeah it just sounds i mean i i just don't think i could do it well i could do it but it sounds Actually, deeply you uncomfortable you don't think about it you just jump in and that's it how long do you have to stay in there? Look, I I only do about two or three minutes. <laughs> two or three minutes? Yeah. And do you, is there any, are we talking like completely cold? No, completely no. cold. Yeah, yeah, uh, completely cold. I just jumped. Initially, it was just warm and then turning to, to I just, the only thing I can't shampoo my hair with completely cold showers. So that when yeah, I shampoo yeah. my a little bit lukewarm. But yeah, I just jump into cold showers straight away. I scream and shout. I do a bit of breathing, fast breathing. Oh I try to imagine that that it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, the power of positive psychology. But but you're, you're based up in Sydney, I see. So, yes. I mean, being in Melbourne, surely we would be allowed to have a little bit of warm water. I mean, it's very cold down yeah, here, yeah, particularly yeah. during winter. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also swim in the. We I've been swimming in in the ocean since July. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, but, um, it's so cold that it's hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we have special wetsuits in Victoria for that kind of thing. Um, I uh, yeah, I've got one. It's very thick, and it's you know you can go in in winter, but yeah, I can't can't imagine doing that in just a humble pair of board shorts or something but um <laughs> oh this is all very very adventurous i think mitch yeah. you and i need to improve our health or at least have a shot at doing cold showers in the morning maybe that's uh put that on the agenda for an ultimate experiment in um 2023 why not uh, you know it's only a few minutes just don't think about the jumping you know and the scream and shout it's so good it wakes you up <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of a bunch of jokes, but to be honest, no. 
I'll just wait. I'll I'll do that once once cannabis is on the PBS, and yeah. I'm I'm okay. I'm depending on you, Teresa, to get us there. Well, how about yeah? Let's keep on. Um, I don't like the word fighting. Let's keep on lobbying. You know, yes. um, convincing and, and talking about it. And I think that's why I put the uh, monetary part in this article because unfortunately, money talks and bureaucrats will only you know look into things if they see the potential financial benefit. Unfortunately, that's how. Oh, Surely the sector has to be generating enough tax, you know, very soon to be able to oh, substantially yeah, yeah, be looked at. You know what I mean? Oh well, I mean, I know that medicines are exempt from GST, but um, at least that the money being well, I was going to say the money being made by some of these companies, but a lot of them are <laughs> operating in some serious debt. Um, I know it's it's not easy. It's not easy, I believe. But also, look, uh, cannabis has so many other usages, like you know, hemp to to grow for fiber, for clothing, for uh, building materials, and so on. I think we could allow farmers to diversify, uh, you know, their, their, their crops, not rely on certain use. Cannabis is also very good for environment, and it's uh, I mean, hemp. It's easy to grow. And uh, it can be grown. I know where um, there's metal. Where where I am from in Poland, there is copper works, and, and there was a lot of uh, uh, pollution in the 70s and 80s. Uh, they've done something about it now. But another thing, they used to uh, grow a lot of kind of uh, you know cannabis ruderalis around around the metal works because it was so good for the soil to purify the soil. So there's so many other beneficial things uh, when it comes to, to cannabis, not only just the medicine, but also so many other usages that could really, really enhance our economy, allow us to diversify. And also another comment that I want to make that cannabis to me is also um, a sort of reflection of attitude in the society. Um, as the synthetic single molecule medicine were introduced not so long ago, beginning of 20th century. And they work, you know, one medicine for this, one medicine for that. But I think as a society, we're kind of craving going back to nature. We want to work with nature. We want to be healed with nature. And, you know, all of these herbs really offer so much healing. I I completely agree with you, Dr. Teresa. And I I think that the recency of of that change to synthetic single molecule medicine um maybe called by others you know referred to goes by other names western medicine however you you wish to think of it but it's worth people understanding that all of the um i guess regulatory frameworks and the systems with which we access medicines we're now as we you know, renew our focus and look at um, natural and and plant-based alternative medicines, we're asking those medicines to be um, dealt with under the the systems that were designed for different types of of drugs. So it's, it really has, um, I think, uh, put us in a position where we need to do something to at least accommodate um, these medicines. And, and I, I think under the current system, at least in Australia, that does need to be reformed. Um, it's ho- yeah. it's bad for doctors. It's bad for patients. I think it's actually bad for the regulator as well. Um, so I, I think that there is just a kind of consensus view that what we have is, is not 
um, you know, fit for purpose. So um, I would really like to see that changed. And also um, the point is that we have created a disease system, mm. you know, because we look at the patient from the point of symptom, chronic pain, heart disease, but when it comes, but, you know, it's only we dissect a human being, put labels because our rational mind operates that way for us to understand, we need to dissect things. So we created more of a disease-oriented uh, system, pharmaceutical systems, when you have single molecular agents just to work on that particular symptoms. Whereas when it comes to plants, for example, cannabis has hundreds of different components. You've got major cannabinoids, THC, CBD, minor cannabinoids, therapies, and flavonoids, and all of them have important uh, immunomodulatory and, and therapeutic properties. And according to entourage effect, one uh, molecule, single molecule is not as effective as the um, whole working together. So I think this is going to be, in my opinion, a bit sort of slow and uh, uh, stepwise, uh, I would say, change when we need to also change our attitude as doctors and as a humanity, as a as, as general public as well, that uh, we need to focus more on prevention, on creating the situation that we actually can prevent the disease. So apart from cannabis, and when it happens, we use herbs, but also diet, exercise, regular meditation, the way you think, how you're dealing with your negative automatic thoughts and, and this kind of thing. I also am very uh, into mind and body connection. People like Joe Dispenza, Wayne Dyer and so on, where they are talking about healing through the power of, of your uh, of your mind, of your spirit and so on. And and we need to embrace it. We, we're having very materialistic worldview. I don't want to sound religion, uh, like a sort of religious person, but uh, that worldview is based on the Newtonian way of thinking of cause and effect and predictability, which is quite a mechanical system. And when you look into quantum physics, I'm not the expert here at all, but in quantum physics, everything is very different. It doesn't mean that if you do this, that happened. And uh, the randomized clinical trials are very much based on trying to eliminate a part of us that is transcendental, invisible, and so on. We try to make it as, as objective as possible, but in doing that, we're losing the part that is most responsible for healing, the spiritual, the transcendental, the invisible part. Yeah, it's... Um, it makes any sense. Well, I'm just, uh, you know, sharing my... No, no, I, I, I agree. It's, it's a very... Um... And we we have held the randomized control, double blind, you know, that is the gold standard, but often at the expense of, you know, doctors, some doctors won't consider any other kind of evidence, you know, and they won't consider. Because I also want to point out that this randomized clinical trials and, you know, this, this evidence actually emerged not so long ago uh, in the beginning of 20th century. And observational and anecdotal evidence has been a part of human experience basically from the beginning of time. So in roughly in about 50s, this kind of way of research occurred in response to the emergence of multiple single molecule synthetic agents. 
And all the time, they became sort of a gold standard. But what um, applies to the general group may not always apply to individual. And it takes away that, uh, you know, for example, doctor-patient relationship, the voice of the clinician, the voice of patient. So in that, um, you know, sort of attempt to be as objective as possible, I think along the way we are losing something. And even though these uh, legally prescribed drugs undergo robust uh, clinical studies, they are not safe. They're still coming with a long list of adverse effects, even death when overdose. So they don't really guarantee safety. Absolutely. And what is uh, evidence today could be negligence tomorrow. Uh, mm -hmm. For example, thalidomide, which was prescribed for pregnant women uh, for nausea vomiting, and, and what and it was evidence based drug. And what happens? So many, you know, birth mal malformations as a result has happened. Absolutely. So and, this approach, although, you know, we, we need to have some kind of objective measures, I totally understand it, but we also need to ask questions that, you know, absence of evidence is not always evidence of absence. I just, I agree. And I, I just feel that this current system is too rigid and too um, heavily designed around this idea that, you know, therapeutic goods regulation is about pre-market approval of quality, safety, efficacy of synthetic molecule, single molecule drugs. That That's all that we need to deal with. That is the scope of medicine regulation. Anything that sits outside of that, well, that's unapproved. And we'll, we'll have special annoying pathways that you have to jump through to, to get access to unapproved medicine. But this is I know you you can kind of when looking at the history of therapeutic goods regulation in this country, you you see how we have gotten to this point. But now we need to kind of we need to put the toothpaste back in the tube. We need to unscramble the egg. We need yeah. to actually go back to unlearn. <laughs> unlearn. We need to say what what actually what's the object here? Healthy society. Um, you know, what is the role of the medicines regulator? Um, what are the incentives that are created by this current system and what bad outcomes and practices do those incentives create? So anyway, I think it's it's time for us to have that conversation, but I know there will be um, you know various people who are very protective of, of the current system that that wouldn't want those any changes to the to the status quo, but um, but I think I think more and more people are starting to appreciate um, that there is a role for medicinal cannabis. Um, I mean, the TGA must be so confused about the sheer numbers of people that are actually accessing unapproved therapeutic goods. I mean, th this was intended to be a pathway for unapproved therapeutics. Well, it wow. like a mainstream. It's or mainstream, right? Like, so we need to you know and they're actually now and on pbs but also what i think as a society we need to find the balance uh for example we need to have regulation we need to have system because as i said before we are not the society of enlightened beings we also tend to have the you know sort of bad side to us or, or our shadow part so we need to have structure we need to have discipline we need to have rules but at the same time these rules and the structure shouldn't be so const you know how to say constricting but we can't even do anything so mm. that needs to be balanced between structure regulation but at the same time allowing you know different way of thinking uh people i also believe that people should have the right to choose 
how they heal themselves. Yeah. But that's our our legal right that, you know, I should be able to choose if I heal myself with a, you know, medicinal cannabis or conventional drug. But also there's another point here. Unfortunately, we live in a litigation-oriented society. So for doctors, uh, let's say sometimes this decision might be difficult because there could be fear of, of litigation. For example, if a patient comes and they say, I don't want to use chemotherapy uh, for my cancer, I only want to use medicinal cannabis. As a doctor, you would be very, very concerned about it, although the patient has the right to choose. Uh, first of all, you're not sure whether the, that, that approach would work completely, but also, you know, the patient can turn against you as well. So litigation could be a bit of a, uh, you know, blocking part. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, no, and there is, I can appreciate the concerns that doctors have and, you know, you don't want any engagement with insurances and, and all of those sorts of things. But um, yeah, I just, I just think we need system reform that gives comfort to patients, doctors, um, and frankly creates less workload for the regulator um, because I feel for and them. For doctors as well, because current yeah. medicine doctors are somehow, you know, becomes a system of medical centers, 10, 15 doctors working together, five minutes consultation in and out. I'm also concerned, um, I don't want to sound critical about cannabis clinics, but we hear some of them really have very quick uh, turnaround, you know, a few minute consultations. Sometimes I believe uh, you know, medicine is issued based on uh, on a text message or, or email. Uh, so we really need to step out of that kind of five minute medicine. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, uh, I feel like we could talk for a long time, Dr. I, I really appreciate uh, all of your absolutely. insights and, you know, we'll keep, keep um, fighting the good fight, you know, lobbying all of the efforts because, uh, you know, at least from your experience vantage point you see what medicine has become in the same way that you know we're, we're also looking at, at what i guess the framework for access has become and you know that there needs to be a much much better way of, of looking at people not just when they need assistance in an acute context but um just living their best life having a cold shower every morning eating well so sleeping well <laughs> you know, this is this is what we're, we support. Um, balance, uh, balance in our lives. Absolutely. Um, it does remain to be seen whether Mitch and I will get on board with the showers, but uh, I'm putting a, a flag in the ground for us to have a, an explore of you that. Should definitely have a shower soon. A cold one? <laughs> I'm showing <laughs> general. Just in general? <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, if I, I guess if I'm going to have a shower, I might as well make it a cold one just to see see how we go. Um, exactly. It's only just, you know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Well, no, Dr. Teresa, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, Likewise. Yeah, really, you know, massive fans of your work. And um, we will, yeah, we, we will look forward to, to speaking with you again soon. Thank Absolutely. you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming on. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, guys. Andrew Dowling here and Mitch Kurtz. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Ultimate Podcast. Make sure to hit like and subscribe because we've got heaps more content coming out and it's really fun and great and we love it all. Also very good. <laughs>